welcome to Doing the Opposite, Business Disruptors, the podcast where you get to meet leaders who have swum against the tide, thrown out the rule book, and changed the way their sector does business for the good. I'm Jeff Dewing, and I'm the founder and CEO of Cloud Facilities Management, a business where we thrive on taking risk so our clients don't have to. Today, you're going to meet Karen Holden. Karen is the founder and managing director of a city law firm who have successfully delivered great outcomes in areas such as high profile royal family trust challenges and high court cases for a transgender parent application to change the law. Karen herself has been given freedom of the city for her incredible work in equality and has won the best businesswoman in legal services and legal advisor of the year. When I think about lawyers and law firms, the first thing that springs to mind is billable hours. And of course, the statement that you tend to get from lawyers that says, well, of course, despite me charging you all this money, there's naturally no guarantee of the outcome. When I think of the challenge Karen took on, not just to do the opposite in terms of taking on an industry, but to have the drive and the passion to succeed in such high level and high profile cases in hugely technical areas. It makes you wonder how you can attract like-minded and highly competent colleagues that have the same drive and passion as you. Welcome, Karen, and thanks for joining me today. Hi, thank you for inviting me along. You're more than welcome. Reading your story, as I've done, and particularly your life leading up to you becoming qualified in a challenging and demanding industry in law, um, you clearly had to dig deep, especially with your mum holding down three jobs as a single parent during your upbringing. Tell me what that was like. How was it to dig deep? Well, I mean, I'm the first person in my family to go to university and have a professional career. So, you know, you, you didn't have the standard mentors and the financial support that most people do. So it was more just finding your way and working out how you were going to do this, what avenues and routes to take. A lot of people didn't really understand my ambition. As at, at eight years old, I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I watched a Perry Mason movie, of all things. Obviously, that's not quite <laughs> the perception that, you know, that law really is. But that's always what I wanted to do. I wanted to strive for better things for, for me and my family. My mum never pushed me. Um, she encouraged, but never pushed. So I was very self-motivated. I don't know where it came from, but I just pushed my way through, got a good education, Obviously, A-levels was probably the trickiest point for me because I was trying to work myself. My mum was trying to work and then working out how we were going to forge university, working through university. So it was always kind of doing night jobs, paper rounds, waitressing, as well as trying to keep the top grades. It's just self-motivation. I, I, I just don't know where it came from, but I managed to push myself all the way through it. Um, there was highs and there was lows and there was times where I'd sit in my bedroom in university with gloves on because I couldn't afford to do put the heating on you know and I look back at times like that and I just think you know my son probably won't experience that but I hope that he understands he's come from humble beginnings and appreciates what we've sacrificed to get where we are everything's different for the youth and hopefully you know other people will learn from what we've been through but yeah, I, I don't know where it came from, but <laughs> I strived through it. Have you ever sort of tried to reflect and to understand? I mean, going through A-levels, working multiple jobs and all the things that you go, you, know, you get home at night, you're absolutely exhausted. There must have been times when you said, what am I doing? There must be an easier way. 
I don't think there was. I mean, I saw my mum, you know, she was a grafter. She worked really hard um, for pennies, if I'm honest. And I think there was a, a pinnacle moment. I went to help her work in a hospital during summer. And this surgeon was talking to me about my master's at Cambridge and was really engaged with me and interested. My mum came in and the way he treated her was she was just this disgusting nobody. Who was she? Oh, wow. He was so disrespectful. And I said, that's my mum. And then he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I was like, well, I, I hope to have the money and the career and the education that he had, but I never wanted to disrespect people. I wanted to change things. And I think that incited me more that I was going to be in his position in a different sector, but I was going to treat people with respect. And I think the way my mum was treated, the grafting she did for the money, I think that pushed me. I didn't right. want to be working those hours treated that way, but I was hoping I could change it for others. Maybe that was very naive. I was probably only, what, 17 at the time. No. It's one of the sayings I love. You're never too important to be kind. And um, and it's an interesting, it's, it's interesting we see how some people behave during your walks of life, isn't it? Absolutely. Okay, so Karen, you then went through and, and, and achieved your goals of education and your masters and all the things that you must have been extremely proud of, especially knowing the work and dedication you put into it. So tell me then what inspired you to decide that it was time to start a business and what was the reasons for that? Honestly, I'd become very despondent about the legal industry. As you started the conversation, it's about the bottom line, billable hours, making money. I didn't join the law for that. I joined it for the challenges, to help people, for the excitement of changing things for the better. I'm working in a commercial firm. You didn't really do that. Um, there was a hierarchy. There was very little respect. Um, a colleague of mine got pregnant and it was almost she was dying. That was it. She was gone. You know, in everyone's eyes, she was she was dead to the world. And I thought, well, I want a family wow. one day. I want a life. Um, I'd worked in a small firm. I'd worked in a large firm. I just felt, well, I'm going to have to leave the sector that I love because it just didn't live up to what I expected. And then me and my husband said, well, you know, let's do it our own. I mean, how hard could it be to set up a law firm? Um, <laughs> very, very naive at that point. Um, but we thought, well, let's do it ourselves. Let's get people in that love the law let's create an environment I want to go into. Let's actually help people. And yes, of course, you know, we do, we're not a charity, we earn money, but we've actually changed it to a lot of fixed fees, capped fees, retainer fees. So it, it goes against what you were saying at the beginning. People know what they're going to spend with us. They know what their budgets are. And I love that because actually now we work with the clients, not against them. And that's principally why I set up was to actually see if I could create a firm and environment I actually wanted to work within. Hmm. So it's one thing creating a, a great company with a great environment that is a pleasure to work in, but then you've also got that added challenge, especially in the highly technical um, industry you have chosen to be in, that the law is very, very technical, especially to the layman. And um, so you then actually got to go on and you've got to be really good at your job, right? Um, so essentially, that's what's going to attract and retain the client. So you, you've got one challenge to create the right environment, the second challenge to be really good at what you do, which sets you aside from the rest. So tell me, apart from the environment, what else is it that you wanted to do to try and disrupt the, the legal industry what what else was it that from your experience of working for the small firm and the big firm and the and what you might argue was the common denominator of culture what, what else was it that you wanted to address 
So interestingly, when I was actually going through my training contract, the dream was to work for many, for a large firm, but you had to do one area of law and you did three traditional or four traditional seats and you learned that one area law and that's what you studied, that's what you trained in, and then that's what you practice. And I was finding, you know, then people were having to pay two or three different lawyers to handle a matter. They're paying a lot of money. And it was very interesting to me that you went into a meeting and a lawyer couldn't handle the entire meeting, the entire conversation, because they had a very narrow area of law in their remit. So I ended up learning different areas of law. And in a smaller practice, I was actually doing five to six areas of law. When I set up the business, I could then manage five to six, seven areas of law and recruit within. And I kind of turned it on its head. So instead of my lawyers being a one-trap pony, they could go into a meeting and handle three or four areas of law, handle the conversation, be more holistic and rounded. That offered the clients more. It offered them a cost-effective solution. But it did mean that the lawyers needed to be trained in a very different way to where I was trained. So again, we got people in early. We nurtured them. We took them through their LPC, their training, their directorships. We've taken people on who are barristers and turned them into solicitors. We've kind of taken people on from a very early stage and nurtured them through the process and engaged them in different areas of law. So, for example, in a family department, you would never get involved in litigation or family, but here you do. It engages the solicitor. Their brain is all constantly being challenged and they're cross-referring work, but they're also actually not charging for three lawyers to sit in a room For example, if you're having a divorce and you own a business, why do you need a commercial lawyer and a family lawyer? Well, here you can have one. And that's quite rare. So finding that takes time. Why do you think other law firms are not doing the same when when the world is moving so fast and clearly the client base by nature going to become more demanding? Why do you think, is it because they're set in tradition and it's really difficult? Why do you think other law firms wouldn't behave that way naturally? So the larger law firms will obviously have multiple resources and they obviously want to charge for several lawyers and want to have that high level specialty. And maybe in the larger firms it works. But I remember them saying people like me would be out of business soon. They just assumed that small businesses would never work, that the relationship wasn't important. It was the technology, the automation, the the, the work itself. And I don't believe that. I think when somebody's setting up a business or growing, it's the support. It's being able to phone at night and just get some mentoring. It's the advice rather than the documentation. And I think we have flipped, through, whether it was COVID or before, that we've gone back to appreciate it's the personality, it's the business service that we're giving. It's the, the small business feel that we all had in the UK that was lost, that's coming back. I think technology's taken over. Everybody believes that everything could be automatic. Everything could be autonomous. And I don't believe that. I think there always has to be a human element. So it's that struggle between how far do you use technology? How far do you make things automated? And the larger firms have big, big overheads. So the more automated, the more they use technology, the more cost efficient it is. Whereas I just don't think that services everybody. Maybe in certain industries, certain sectors, certain businesses it does. But if you're growing a business, you want a personality there. You want somebody who says, right, I understand the law now. I understand my options. But what would you do, Karen? What would you guide me for? What should I be doing? Mm. And I don't know that all firms do that. No. And I guess it's like the banking industry um, that are very traditionalized and, and it was very inward looking. And I think I think the legal system is as well. Um, but there's one golden rule that every entrepreneur will always know and that people only do business with people 
and therefore people will always have to be involved. The relationship is always king and everything else is about efficiencies and whatever, but you can never take the person out of the equation because it then becomes a soulless purpose, doesn't it? It's soulless. So um, so no, I completely, I completely get what you're saying. And I guess the other part about law, which I'm, I'm interested in, is I, I sort of, I measure it against advertising. So if the Sun newspaper came to me to try to sell me a full-page advert and said, it's going to cost you £10,000 for this full-page advert for one insertion. And I say to him, okay, great. Can you tell me exactly how much profit I'm going to earn from that, please? They say, well, no, we can't guarantee you earn any profit. Um, That's not what we do. What we do is we sell advertising and you hope you get something out of it. Um, so there's no guarantees. It's spend money with me and the outcome will be the outcome. And I don't lose any sleep if you win or you lose. So I align that to law with my experience in personal and in business where you engage a law firm to, to solve a problem that you're facing. They'll give you indications to the extent they can, but there's this huge caveat that says this could all go horribly wrong, but you still need to pay us. Right. So it's about that lack of outcome or lack of whereas in our industry and lots of industries like ours, you know, if I say I'm going to deliver this outcome, if I don't deliver the outcome, I'm accountable and therefore I have to I, I behave in a slightly different way, perhaps. So that's 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 how I see it. It's different. I mean, because law is obviously quite, you know, a wide range. So if you come to us for a divorce, you're ultimately going to get the divorce. It's just mitigating the losses, making it as amicable, as swift as possible. If you come to us to set up a business, get investment, do commercial work, you will get exactly what we deliver, you know, solid, robust documents, commercial advice, and we'll take you through the process and we'll make it as tax efficient, legally structured and protecting as possible. But with litigation, which is pretty much where we're sat now, is you're right, there's no guarantee to win or lose. However, what we try to do here is pretty much help and support you throughout the whole process, give you the best possible chance of success, mitigate as much loss costs as possible, help you through business destruction. Sometimes it's not necessarily about winning. It's actually having someone on your side and supporting you. The stress involved in a court case sometimes is more than the actual outcome. Um, So it's more, we, we work in the preventative area. So the better the contracts, the better you deal with things initially, hopefully we protect you in the future. The better the contracts and everything going forward, the more likely the deal is to succeed. I think we just we see it more as a personal relationship. Let's guide you, support you, mitigate damage, prevent everything going wrong. And that's all we can do. Yeah, of course, of course. And again, it does come back to I have another element of my world where I talk about cost and value. And everybody, especially in the procurement world, say, no, we're trying to establish value. Um, and my view of the world is you cannot, you cannot buy value. You cannot someone cannot sell you something and say, we will give you great value because value is an experience. It's something you experience after the fact where you say, did I get good value? Um, And if you've got a law firm or any firm selling you a service, they can only sell you and your only measurement is cost. How does this cost compare to what I've spent before? But you may end up having a really bad experience. I think it's trust actually, Jeff. Yeah, it is, yeah. I think it's trust you would buy with us actually rather than value. Let's say a lawyer does a contract and both parties charge £500 for the contract. I think it's trust. So with clients with us, it's trusting that we know them and their business. We trust that you understand the risk that we want to take. We trust you've listened to us. So I think it's a bit like a builder. You know, you get the, the, the different quotes. Who do you go with? It's referrals. Who do you trust? 
So if they're going to deliver a similar job, who do you trust? And I think it's that personal relationship again. We can all deliver good or bad documents, but it's who actually gets to know you. So if you, Jeff, were asking me for a document, I'd want to know you, your business, your risk appetite, what your objectives are. I'd take the time to get to know what I'm doing for you. It's not just a document. So I think for me, you're buying my trust. You're buying the faith in me. I completely buy into that. Totally buy into that. So now, listen, you've been running your business for a number of years now. So, you know, how does it, what, what, what's your journey looking like now? What's, what's, what's next? What have you learned for the last sort of 15, 17 years of running your business where you've got it into its place? You feel you've, 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 you've disrupted, you're doing things differently. Um, hence the one lawyer for multiple activities as opposed to one lawyer per activity. Um, you know, what's next what do you do to go next or are you now just settled in that's the routine no i mean we are extremely busy so like most businesses it's now do you scale up do you hire new staff do you you keep as you are so we've decided that we have taken on new staff we are onboarding new people to manage the workload coming in so we are slowly growing again um we need to stabilize the ship because the work's busy so we need to make sure that we can handle the work coming in that the processes are clear I think I would like to take more of a step out of actually doing the work and actually start looking at the strategy and overall plan for the business. We're starting to run a program for female founders. So actually women that are struggling to get funding and grow their business for many reasons, we've actually got a program developed, which is the legal work will be done by the firm, but I'm now actually sitting on the advisory panels, helping them with VCs, helping them in their whole holistic approach giving them actual panel discussions and IP workshops. So that's kind of something that we want to develop as part of the business, feeding more work in. And then ideally, I suppose I'd be looking to either get another partner in or sell or integrate with someone in the next three to five years so that we can take our brand, our clients and offer them more and really scale up. That's kind of my three to four year vision. Okay. So you would say you are just as pumped now as the day you were when you launched the business? few more grey hairs, but yes. Um, <laughs> I'm still doing just as much as I was, yes. <laughs> right. So, so is it fair to say that while you started off trying to disrupt the industry in the methods you've explained, that you've, when I now listen to you doing something which I'm really impressed about, when you're saying we're now going to help women startups, because again, one of the things that is of absolute fact, whether you like it or not, is that um, investment in women has always been materially less than investment in men, just for for whatever the reasons are. So to see you tackle that challenge and make a difference is is admirable and obviously it's a strong purpose, right? So so that sounds that sounds great, especially when you've got that motive and that passion, that drive and and, and that relentlessness, which will which will be which will be massive for the people involved, obviously, which is great. So what does your role does your husband play? Is he a lawyer as well? No, he retired um, a while ago and was going to be a stay-at-home dad, and he lasted three months. <laughs> so, um, he then went and got a job, um, right. and we realised we couldn't take holidays together, we couldn't do the child support together because a lot of firms aren't flexible. So in the end, he came and worked here as an operations manager. Oh, so lovely. he works with us. So right. um, so far, we haven't killed each other. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, how did your business how did it suffer, if at all, through the COVID pandemic? What impact did that have on your business? Apart from everybody else paying rent for an empty building because we couldn't go in. And, and I think the difficulty is training people. They're not hearing your calls and phone calls. So training was an, an issue for us. 
actually we thrive through COVID. We've been paperless for a very long time. We've all been able to work remotely and flexible. It's been something we've been doing for many, many years. So actually, to be honest, apart from me tearing my hair out, I like to be in the office with people. It didn't really change. Um, because we had the facility to actually think differently, where, for example, you needed to sign a document, we came up with solutions. We approached the SRA, made sure that they worked. We adapted new solutions that then allow more clients to come to us rather than the traditional firms that were still paper-based, that couldn't do what we did. That meant we had more clients, more traffic. Obviously, people weren't traveling, so they were working longer hours. And then I've tried to try and compensate for that as well to be very careful. Because again, you've probably read that people were saying, you know, there was no cutoff time. When you leave the office, you go home. So I needed to be careful. So we arranged a lot of quiz nights and drinks with staff to keep the camaraderie up, to make sure they understood they're allowed a work-life balance. But actually, to be honest, we are probably far busier as a result of COVID. Mm, which is interesting because if you take it, if you go the polar opposite with us, we were invoicing £7 million a month to our client base, which was predominantly the hospitality industry. And on the 20th of March, that fell off a cliff and went down to about 200000 So, And we had 400 mouths to feed. So you know, it was very, very traumatic and had a massive impact on us. But pleased to say we've come out the other side and, and everything's sort of you know, looking great. But um, I guess my next question is that when you then come out the other side of COVID, from the experiences you had in COVID, i.e. working remotely and, and all the various things that you were forced to do and had to do, what impact has that had now? Have you carried on that momentum or have you defaulted back to what it used to be pre-COVID? What, what's, what, what lessons did you take from COVID? So we have still meet a lot of clients on Zoom virtually, um, which actually does speed up the process. It means we can see more clients. We can offer quicker quality with them so we've, we've maintained that but obviously we are still back here now for personal face-to-face if they wish to do that personally I found online webinars and networking very difficult so I'm back doing face-to-face and I love that um flexibility has always been something we've offered for the team but like most people getting people back into the office has had its good and bad sides. So some of us are desperate to be here and we are. Some don't want to come back into the office. They've saved money. They've got themselves a dog or a new lifestyle. And I think for employees, it's difficult because you want a hybrid. You want to please them. You want to save money with them being at home. But at the same time, you need them back in the office for team spirit, training. So it's kind of a juggling act at the moment. So we tend to, at the moment, we've allowed everyone to work at home on Fridays that everyone's remote on Fridays. Um, and then some people will do three days and some people will do four days. The flexibility is still there, but we are back mainly face-to-face when clients and staff need it. Right, good. So, and that is, I think for me, it's about hybrid. So we went the complete opposite way. We've always had a business with 50 people in the office looking at about 30 screens, monitoring what's going on. We used to call it NASA. So it's a, a really posh, but really technical place to be. And it was lovely, yeah. right? But then, of course, we immediately overnight went to 100% work from home because we had to, um, as most companies did. But what we've done is we've maintained that. So we had seven offices. We got rid of five of them. And what we did was the remaining two offices, we completely refitted into what we called collaboration centers, which were full of couches and, and trinkets and cupboards, the same as you would see at home, if you like. And what we did was we said to people, look, there are people that are desperate to be in the office. That's fine. You can come in the office. But we only want you to be here 
um, for three reasons. One is that is to collaborate, two, to solve problems, and three, to have fun. So we've got snooker tables and table tennis tables and stuff like that in there, and free lunch and all the other bits and pieces. But when you come here, you don't come here for eight hours. You come here for the two or three hours you, you want to solve the problem or meet your client, and, and then you go back again. You transact at home, you collaborate, solve problems, and have fun at the office. And a lot of people were very dismissive of it in the organisation, saying that will never catch on. And yet it's been the most unbelievable success we've ever had, where people have got that entire freedom. And it's made people just release all their stress and anxiety because now they're not arguing with the husband or the wife who's taking the kids to school that day. I've got to be in the office. I can't get back till five. It's given people that freedom to truly manage their own lives in their own way. It influences their destiny, if you want. Um, so, But of course, that... That will always differ from if you're an engineer in a van, you can't do your job from home. You've got to go and fix something, right? So it's not it's not one fits all, but but certainly it's an interesting experience across sectors that I've always been interested to see how they responded to it. I mean, it's difficult because you don't know whether people are stressed at home. Some people of say course. they're very isolated and lonely. Um, some people are going nuts because the kids are there. So yeah, you've, you've got to juggle it. And it's a very difficult one for larger organisations. Yeah, yeah, of course it is, of course it is. Um, if it was easy, it'd be boring though, right? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to get on to my last question now. Um, with your knowledge, experience and wisdom that you've gone through in, in your journey, um, if there was only one thing you could mention, what one piece of advice would you give an executive or an entrepreneur or this audience um, who sees that they want to change something or, or they want to disrupt or they want to improve or they want to make a difference? but they're, be, they're nervous about starting a business or nervous about becoming a disruptor. What one piece of advice would you give those people? Surround yourself with really good people. Um, having an ecosystem is everything. Um, you know, people that you can go to to moan and groan at, people that can go for support, asking questions. I think when I first started, I was doing it on my own. And eventually I had a really good ecosystem of advisors, of friends, of mentors, technicians, it's having that ecosystem and without that, I just don't think you can succeed. Yeah, and I completely, completely agree. Okay, Karen, I'm going to wrap it up now and I'm going to say a big thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I particularly loved your last statement, which is something that's true to my heart. You know, none of us are superhuman. Um, we succeed purely by having great people around us and mostly people that are better than us. Yep. But having that ecosystem for me is is the one thing that's, that, that stands out of, of, among that bit of advice. And I completely, completely agree. Big thanks to Karen for taking the time to share her stories and experiences with me and us today. Please do listen back to other episodes of Doing the Opposite, where you'll hear from people like Diana Morato on how she managed to navigate furious challenges as she rolled out Deliveroo across Spain, or Linda Green on how her roller coaster life built incredible resilience, which shaped her life and her approach to being an entrepreneur. I'm Jeff Dewing, author of the best selling book, Doing the Opposite, and CEO of Cloud FM. Cloud FM are changing the rules of our industry and doing the opposite to create best value for our clients. If you'd like to know more, please visit our website at cloudfmgroup.com or follow us on LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the podcast and my incredible guests at podcast.cloudfmgroup.com. Finally, a big thanks to Nicola Crawshaw at Cloud FM, Thinking Hat PR, 
and Cravens Marketing, who have all helped me shape and launch this new disruptive podcast. Thanks for listening.